Well, let's turn to the Word of God this morning into our uh, time hearing him speak to us through the Word. This is our 18th week in our sermon series, and the title of our message today is Wilderness Days. Wilderness Days. Now, we're closing in on our time together in the book of Exodus. We're, we're about done. Now, if you're looking at your Bible going, we are nowhere near the end of the book of Exodus. Pastor, what are you talking about? That's because we're not getting through the entire book of Exodus in this series. In just a few more weeks, we're going to wrap up. We're going to end the, the, our looking through the series as kind of the narrative wraps up here in just a couple chapters. So, with a new, ch- a new series on the horizon for, for the fall, what I want us to do is really kind of get a big uh, picture, remind ourselves a lot of what we've been seeing throughout the book of Exodus, some important lessons that we've been drawing from this series. We're going to cover these next uh, few chapters, the events of them, pretty fast. Um, I'm not going to read as lengthy of sections as we go through the next few weeks. I'm just going to draw out some really important um, principles that are here in the text and some things that God said to the Israelite people that I believe he's also saying to us today and is a very timely word for us today, some very practical truths that we need to apply just as much as Israel needed to apply it in their day. So if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. Verse 22. I read those first 18 verses of uh, Exodus 15 this morning, the Song of Moses. So we kind of got, got that sense of what had happened right after the deliverance at the Red Sea. The Song of Great Joy, the worship, all of that, the people declaring, Our God is this great God, as we sang, right? He's glorious. He's the one who's triumphed. He's the one who must be praised for all that he's done. He's a warrior and a victor, and no one can stand up against our God, right? There's just this overwhelming acknowledgement of who God is and what God has done, and praise just overflows out of the people from seeing that. It's all very appropriate worship. It's all a very powerful moment there on the other side of the Red Sea in their deliverance. But now, where we pick up in verse 22 is Israel's begun to to leave that part. They were there on the other side of the Red Sea, uh, on the, the east side of it. They've sang and they've worshiped. And now we pick up in verse 22 as they're headed further east into the wilderness. Look at verse 22 through 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So away from the Red Sea, away from the shores of deliverance that they had been standing on, the place where they'd worshiped God's faithfulness and power there, the people began to head towards a new home that God's promised them. He didn't just say, hey, I will deliver you out of Egypt and then good luck, (laughs) figure it out. No, he said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you to this land that I have promised to your great father, Abraham. I have a new place, a promised land, a home for you to head Two, right? So the promise is not completed, even though the deliverance has been won. Egypt's armies lay dead at the Red Sea. That is true. God's fulfilled that. But the story's not over. And so the people set out, headed towards this new home that God's promised them, and they are three days into their journey before their sinfulness overflows and overtakes the worship from the shore, and they begin now to grumble. Now, to be fair, let's, let's see this as they saw it, Okay? So three days into the journey of the wilderness of Shur, east of Egypt, away from the place of suffering and misery that they had been in for 400 years, but but essentially home for 400 years. These people never knew anything other than Egypt, right? That's where they were born and raised. Their parents were born and raised. They'd been there a long, long time. And now they're moving away from all of that, headed east into a wilderness region. And as they're going through the wilderness, 
they can't find any new source of water for three days. They, they just have to rely on what we're, they're carrying. And they're, they're in the, the Middle East area, right? So this isn't a nice 60-degree weather, you know, perfect hiking, right? It's hot. And whatever water they're carrying is getting warm and kind of stale. And it's not very refreshing as you're journeying with this type of water. And that's all they have. And so as they're heading away, they, they see on the horizon, there's, a, there's an oasis. Ah, water. We're going to get, oh, it's going to be so good. Let's get there. We'll be refreshed. There's probably some trees that grow near the water. We'll, we'll be in the shade. It'll be wonderful. And so they get to this spring or this well of water, and the first person goes down and gets some of the water and brings it to their lips and immediately spits it out and tells everyone, it's bitter. This is no good to drink. It's awful. What we have, even though it's warm, is better than what we can pull from this spring. Now, the disappointment has to be incredible, Right? I mean, just try to put yourself in this situation. If that's your experience, you're thinking, yes, that's incredibly disappointing. I mean, you and I get a little bit, of, a little bit cranky, a little bit frustrated if you grab for your bottle of water after it's been sitting there and you're expecting it to still be cool and you take that swig and it's already lukewarm. You're like, Ugh. you know? Anybody had that experience? Okay, <laughs> good, not just me. Or the other side of it, right, maybe you've got a hot drink. Like this, this happened to me this morning, literally, as I was, I was drinking my coffee, working on things this morning, praying, and I reached over. It had been a while sitting there, and, you know, I drink coffee the proper way, not the way Hallie and Malia drink it, you know, cold and iced and cold brew and all that. No, it's hot coffee. That's what it should be. But I take a sip of it, and it's not hot anymore, and I'm like, ugh, right, that lukewarm. Yeah, it's just not refreshed. It's not what I was expecting, and so I'm immediately disappointed in it right? We've been there. We understand that. It's the same thing for the people of Israel, maybe just even a, a little bit stronger, right? Because for me, the solution was easy. I can just go down and make another cup of coffee. You know, no big deal. But here they are traveling for three days. They find incredible disappointment because it's not what they're expecting. It's not refreshing water that they pull from the stream. And so with this disappointment, they begin to grumble. And they literally name the place bitterness. <laughs> That's how upset they are. That's the meaning of the word, Mara. It's bitterness. That's all they call it now. Probably had a different name, right? Different region before then. No, nope. For them, it's simply bitterness. It, again, can, can you relate to, Have you ever had such a bad experience somewhere that you just renamed the place, at least for yourself, right? Someone's like, hey, how, was your, how, how did you like the restaurant you just went to or that trip you went on? And you're like, it's awful. It was dumb, disappointing, you know? You don't even use its word anymore. It's like it's not even, it wasn't even the name of the restaurant. It's just that dumb and disappointing place. You ever been there? Just me? <laughs> okay. All right, that's cool. I'll admit it. Uh, yeah, this is, this is what they're, they're, they get to this place. It's so disappointing. The, the place is so, it's filled with bitter water, and they're so bitter about it, they just call the place bitterness. And it would be crushing, right? Three days walking in the wilderness, seeing what you believe will provide what you want, and then not finding it. You're disappointed, and unfulfilled desires produce bad responses in us very often. The experience in principle is very relatable to us, I think. Even if you've never literally walked for three days in a wilderness, you've had similar experiences. But the problem that is present here and the real issue, the real point of this, is not that the waters of Mara were bitter. The problem and the real point of what we need to see here is that the people themselves are bitter. And that's what comes out here. Mara is a place of bitterness, not primarily because of the water, but because it exposed the bitterness of the people. They begin to grumble. They begin to complain. They begin to reveal that they are not trusting the God who they sang about three days ago as their great deliverer and savior. That's really not what's deepest in them. There's a root of sinfulness that's exposed here, the root of bitterness that produces grumbling. 
Now, again, we can sit in here and we can think back about that, and it can be really easy in our air condition, the ceiling fans running, the comfortable pews, and think, if I'd have been there, <laughs> wouldn't have been me. I'd have got it. I'd have done better. But this would have been you and I. We would have responded this way too. Just three days after seeing God deliver them from Pharaoh's army, seeing God control the waters of the Red Sea, seeing God provide in all the plagues, all that stuff, three days later, there are grumbling, distrusting, bitter people, doubting God instead of believing in his power and his readiness to provide for them in the wilderness where he's led them. So if we're honest with our own hearts and we look at that principle of what's underneath these events that we read about, we find it's true of us too, right? How many of us three days past a Sunday when we've gathered in here and thought about the great wonderful works of God, his love for us, his faithfulness, his mighty works of salvation, by Wednesday, there's a little bit of bitterness overflowing in us. Anybody? Yeah. See, it's the same thing. We act in those moments as if our situations in life are an inescapable wilderness that we've gotten lost in and God's not with us anymore just three days after we've celebrated the God who's accomplished such mighty acts of salvation and made us remember his great promises to always be with us. But I don't want us to get this wrong, and I don't want to pretend like, well, you know, the problem is you just are looking at life wrong. You know, Wednesday, your, your, your perspective is skewed. The world's really great, and Sundays, you know, the rest and relaxation should just, that should be the way you view all of your life. No, the reality is life really is a wilderness experience. It's filled with trials and difficulties. That is the reality of life. We're not at home in this life. We will never find all that we could want in this life. The Bible calls us to be pilgrims, not settlers. See, we're headed, like the people of Israel, we're headed towards the promised land. We're headed towards our home in heaven. But this world that we're in right now, this world, while it's filled with good and gracious, enjoyable gifts that God does bless us with, and we should appreciate those things, primarily this world that we live in is a wilderness filled with trials and afflictions. Because everyone in this whole world is fallen and corrupted by sin and in rebellion against God in one way or another. And so that's really the right perspective for us to look at, even as we gather on a Sunday, to not get too comfortable with the good things that God has blessed us with, the nice building, the, the lights, the air conditioning, the TVs, the pews, right? We shouldn't get too comfortable thinking, this is it, you know, we've made it. <laughs> we have arrived. We've got everything we could ever need right here we should remember we are pilgrims. Or to change the analogy a little bit, we're soldiers on deployment. We have a mission here, an assignment here. We're on a battlefield here. We're not, we're not home. We're not thinking, well, maybe the Lord will deploy us in the army. We're, we're deployed. This is the mission field. This is the battlefield. And we're part of a rescue mission that God himself is conducting. And so you and I, if we're soldiers on the field with a mission, we cannot afford then to get distracted by the wrong task of saying, how much can I collect for myself and pick up for myself and build up comforts for myself? You're not here for yourself. You're here to go to the lost, to rescue those whom God is at work in their lives. This life is a wilderness journey because it's not our permanent homeland. So we should not be too invested in seeking comfort here. But that reality doesn't mean, because this is the experience of life, it is the wilderness season for us. This life is the wilderness journey for us. That doesn't mean we should become bitter about this life. 
The very first thing we see in Israel just three days after the amazing climactic work of God's deliverance of them from Egypt is the exposure of this root of bitterness in their very human, very relatable hearts. Their bitterness becomes exposed and expressed as their disappointment says, I thought we were going to get home now. (laughs) I thought this would be more comfortable now. When instead the reality of the wilderness pressed in on them. They did not respond rightly in their journey. They expected the comforts of home instead of expecting the trials of the wilderness. So God responds to them at Mara with both a gracious provision for them and a very important spiritual teaching for them. Look at verses 25 to 27. So Moses cried to Yahweh and Yahweh showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Then Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ears to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Verse 27, Then they came to Alim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and there they encamped by the water. So God's response to their bitterness, which overflows here at Mara, is to provide sweet water for them, refreshing and pure water for them through a miracle, right? There's no log that you can toss into water and make it all clean and perfectly good, right? That was the hand of God using an ordinary thing to produce an extraordinary supernatural result. The problem that we find here, of course, as we look at the narrative, we see, well, what mistake did they make? The problem was they didn't even ask God for his provision at all, did they? They just began to complain. They reached an area in the wilderness that wasn't what they wanted, and they began to grumble and complain and become bitter. They didn't ask God to provide for them. They immediately doubted and questioned if God would provide for them or if he could provide for them. See, the problem with Israel and this part of their journey is that their idea of living by faith isn't really faith. They thought we're out of Egypt. Things should be comfortable. Things should be easy. Things should be good. And yeah, we'll follow God as long as things are good and easy and comfortable. But living the life of faith requires trust when circumstances are difficult. Living the life of faith is not about living the life of comfort. It's about living with trust when circumstances are difficult. Because the life of faith, if you've walked with God for any amount of time, you know the life of faith doesn't mean there there will be no challenges or hardships or difficulties. We've all faced them. Many of us are facing them right now. The life of faith doesn't say those things will never come. The life of faith says you will respond differently when those things come because your God is with you. So the life of faith is lived out as we trust God and go to God in the midst of the difficult circumstances. When we believe that he can and will provide for us. When we trust that he is good and sovereign. When we give him our fears and our concerns and our anxieties and we ask for his peace and comfort and power to work and handle the things that we can't handle, that's the life of faith. It's lived out in wilderness days where we cannot see what we want. We do not experience what we hope for. When we are not yet in possession of all that he has promised for us back home because we realize we're pilgrims, not settlers yet. The life of faith is trusting in what God says and living in obedience when it's hard, relying on him when we don't have all that we need, trusting he's the one who will provide. So God's response, again, is to graciously provide for his people, 
but also to speak to this deeper issue. He tells them, you need, verse 26, you need to trust me diligently. Listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God, and obey. Do that which is right in his eyes. Trust in him because he is, he declares, Yahweh, your healer. He's not just the healer of physical things, though we thank him for that. We believe for those physical healings that we prayed for this morning. He is the physical healer, yes, but more importantly, he's the healer who can heal that root of bitterness that's been exposed in them. He's the God who can heal from sin inside a person as well. He can save us from the death that dwells within. And so we need to see what happens after this moment at Mara 2. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. So this is the first of three places we're going to look at and three responses we're going to look at. Exodus 16, verses 1 to 3. So then they set out from Alim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Well, that sounds ominous. Which is between Alim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So again, let's take in the context of where we are. The people have left the place of bitterness, Mara. They experienced God's gracious provision for them in the place of rest at Alim. And that was still not the place God had intended for them to be. So he leads them onward, right? And now we're just 45 days past the Red Sea, right? 15th day of the second month. So about 45 days past the deliverance, only a few days probably past leaving Alim and heading from God's provision and rest into a new area of the wilderness. And another root of bitterness, another root of sinfulness is exposed in the people. The people began to grumble against, God, against Moses and Aaron. They began to remember things wrongly. Notice this. This is the dangerous deceit of nostalgia. They began longing for the good old days and acting as if those days were just perfect. Now, for the last 18 weeks, we've been in the book of Exodus, right? In this whole series, and we've walked through the beginning of the book to right here. So over the 16 chapters of the book of Exodus so far, tell me, is this the right remembrance of what Egypt was like that they describe here? No, <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, if you think back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, the people are crying out for deliverance from Yahweh. It's unbearable. This is awful and horrible. You must rescue us. And yet here in chapter 16, verse 3, after God's miraculously and powerfully delivered them with all these incredible things, they're grumbling and they're acting as if Egypt, well, really wasn't that bad. In fact, it was actually pretty, pretty delightful. We sat by the meat pots. We had our fill of meat and bread. And it was so much better than where we are now in the wilderness, God. They act as if the deliverance that God has provided is really just devastating destruction forced upon them by their leaders and a cruel, untrustworthy God. And we do this exact same thing today in principle, don't we? Like I said, the power of nostalgia is a very dangerous thing in all ages. Powerful enough in this text for Israel, who had been enslaved, who had been being murdered and killed and all the things we've looked at in Egypt, for them to think, you know, Egypt really wasn't that bad. It was actually pretty good. I kind of wish we could go back to Egypt. If nostalgia can be that powerful in these people, think about you and I, who we're not looking back in our lives upon slavery and that type of hardship. We're looking back mostly upon blessing and good times in the past, right? 
they sin in longing to go back from where God moved them. And we do the same thing. We often long for the good old days. We want to go back to those things, to the blessings we had in the past. Instead of trusting God with where we are or trusting God with where he's taking us forward, we want to go back to something he did before, something he moved us on from before. So regardless of where we've been brought from by God, the longing to go backwards to where he's moved us off of is not obedience to the command that we looked at last week where he told the people to go where? Forward in faith. Not go backward. Not, okay, hey guys, we just killed Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. They're all dead on the seat. Let me part that back over. Let's go back over into Egypt and just take over and sell. Let's go back. No, he said, go forward. Follow me into a wilderness, to a different place, to different seasons. See, practically, you and I, we, we, we've got to learn the lesson from Israel. We need to stop longing for the good old days. You know, back when the political policies were different under some other president, we need to stop wanting to go back to the society of years gone by. What's happened to our nation? That's not the right focus for our lives. In the church, we cannot keep pining for the past, thinking the methods and the practices of the days gone by, which may have been richly blessed by God, may have been used in incredible ways. No one's arguing that at all. But us longing to go back to what God did in the past is not the life of faith that God calls us to in following him forward. Nostalgia will cloud our vision. It will make us think wrongly of the past, idealize it too much. And it can make us think much too negatively of the present. See, the people in this passage, they think the present is far worse than it really is. They're crying out, we're going to die of hunger, Moses. You're trying to kill us all in the wilderness. But in just a few verses, we're going to learn they actually have their entire flock still with them. If they really want something to eat, they could, make, they could drink the milk from the goats. They could make cheese. They could even slaughter an animal and roast meat. They're not dying. They're not starving to death. But nostalgia has made them think, this is awful, so horrible. And what we had in the past was so wonderful. Let's just go back. This is a dangerously deadly thing that we all face. It is folly for us to long for the past to come again. It won't for any of us. Personally, I was thinking about this just this week. Melina, I've been having a lot of conversations as spies getting ready to head back to school. It is absolute foolishness for us to sit back and think, I really wish Tobiah was four years old again instead of eight heading into second grade. You know, four, it was such a great time with him. He was so cute. He had all these fun things he did. It's foolish for us to long for him to be that again. He won't be. I can't go back. Longing to relive those days won't happen no matter how much we want them. God has placed us in this moment. And living in faith means, yes, reflecting and learning from the past. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying we ignore the past. You know I love history. But we only learn from it and we live in this moment and in the moments to come. Being faithful doesn't mean we get to go relive our past experiences. It means that we are trusting and active right now and willing to move forward and do the new things in the new seasons that God takes us into instead of longing for what was so comfortable or enjoyable in the past. So thankfully, here in Exodus 16, the second time this, this sinful roots are exposed in the people, despite their grumbling, despite their distrust in their hearts, God again provides for his people 
and again speaks to this deeper issue and speaks to us in our deeper issue as he's revealing what's happening in their grumblings. Physically, what God does here as he provides is incredible. This miraculous provision of food in the middle of the wilderness. And there's incredible spiritual truths that can be learned from this provision. And really, the whole rest of chapter 16, I mean, it's so incredible. It's really, truly worthy of at least a whole sermon, if not a few sermons, to unpack. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize what happens. I'm going to pull one key truth out of here, and then we're going to continue on to a third example of what takes place in this wilderness season here. What we see in, in chapter 16, as I summarize for you, is we see the same pattern that we've acknowledged over and over again, is God tells Moses, here's what's going to happen, Moses, and then it happens exactly as God said, right? Proving, I know what's going to happen. I can make what I say happen. He does that again in these verses. And we see two incredible miracles of provision that teach these important lessons of faith. And then they give a strong warning about this common sin that they're expressing, this grumbling that's coming about in the people. So the first thing God does is he sends quail that night to provide meat for the Israelites. And he sends so many quail, they're, they're just everywhere. They cover the entire camp. And God allows the people to capture the quail and cook and eat as much as they want. They have their complete fill of meat. So their, their faulty view, the nostalgic view they had of Israel was, you know, back in Israel, we had our fill of meat. That was not true, but here God gives them that gift. In the middle of a wilderness, he gives them meat to their fill. Incredible provision that God gives them. Then second, God sends a supernatural bread, as Paul will later refer to it, for the people to eat. And scholars, again, like many scholars who are unbelieving scholars, because there are many unbelieving scholars, will try to explain this stuff away. They don't like the supernaturalism of the Bible, the power of God, and so they want to they come up with some explanation. There's some natural reason this stuff appeared. Here's what it is. There is no naturalistic explanation. What was sent down from heaven does not exist in nature. It was a divine bread that God gave to the people. And so every morning as they went out and collected this bread, Whatever they collected was what they needed for that day. They ate it, they were satisfied and filled, but that bread would only last for one day. So if they tried to hold it over and tried to provide for themselves to store some up, it grew moldy and rotted overnight. Every single day, except on Fridays. When God said, on Fridays, I want you to collect two days worth. Whatever you have collected all this week, double that on Friday and then store half of it. And unlike every other day where it spoils and rots overnight, that will remain preserved. And so on the Sabbath day, Saturday, you will have then all of this stuff that I provide for you the day before. That will remain. Don't go collect anything on a Sabbath. Eat what I have preserved for you. And then the next day, you go and collect only a day's worth. And so on, this was the cycle that he established for them. What God was teaching his people in this was to rely upon him day by day. They couldn't rely upon their abilities. They couldn't preserve and save themselves. He said, no, you need to trust me every single day and obey my words. Collect just enough for one day, every day, except Friday. Collect two days, and I will miraculously preserve that for you. But the spiritual lesson I want us to see here is actually comes from the warning statement that God gives. It's a statement of fact that is repeated five times here in this section of Exodus 16, where the people are told, God hears your grumbling. So we'll just listen to it from one verse. Verse 8, Moses and Aaron tell the people, Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, Yahweh has heard your grumblings that you grumble against him. For what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. And that's a very sobering statement for them. If they understood what that really meant, the God of great might and power, the Holy One, he hears your grumbling. 
And that should have stopped it all right there, right? But it didn't, apparently, because five times it has to be said in Exodus chapter 16. And you and I need to hear the same truth spoken to us. The sin of grumbling is seen and heard by God himself. That's how personal God is with his people. He hears the grumblings. He knows what they were saying and thinking and feeling and those choice words that they mumbled under their breath and the things they said in private, you know, and their frustration. God heard and saw all of it. He always sees and hears everything that takes place. That should be a thought that actually does impact our daily lives. God sees it all, hears it all, knows it all. You can't hide anything from him. It should be convicting because we're a people who love to grumble and complain, just like the Israelites did. And God sees that and hears that. He knows when we whine about the plans that we don't like, the things that didn't go our way, the decisions somebody make that we don't agree with. He hears your complaint in all of it. And what does Moses tell the people? Your grumblings are not really grumblings against me. Yes, I'm making the decision. Yes, I'm in charge. Yes, I'm the one leading us forward and following God. But your complaints are not truly against me. You're grumbling against God himself. Before we apply that too much more to our hearts right now, let's go to the last section for this morning. Jump down to chapter 17, verse 1. Now all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of Yahweh and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water there for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So once again, very, very similar experience and events to the ones we started with this morning, right? The lesson that they should have learned at Mara three days after leaving the Red Sea apparently has been forgotten. And the same distrust of God that, that overflowed there overflows here. And this root of sinfulness is exposed as they become quarrelsome, argumentative, accusatory of others, defensive of oneself. That's what this means. And who are they ultimately quarreling with? Moses tells them, your argument is not with me, it is with God. You are testing God himself. So I wanted us to go here before we applied anything else to our hearts because I completely understand this morning that the reality is... Um, some of us in our own hearts this morning are jumping right from the second sin to the third sin, and we're, we're argumentative now. These sins aren't me. I'm not bitter. I'm not a grumbler. I'm not complaining. What I'm doing is different. <laughs> Maybe right now in your heart is that, that war that goes on, trying to convince yourself, no, 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 I'm not like the Israelites. I'm, I'm justified in what I'm upset about and bothered by. I, I'm, not, I'm not them. I'm the most holy, sanctified person that's ever lived. I don't struggle with bitterness and grumbling and quarreling. <laughs> so if that's what's going on in your heart, let me just lovingly tell you you're lying to yourself. Because we all struggle with the sins of bitterness, grumbling, and quarreling at various times and to various degrees in our lives. Every single one of us. 
and that argument inside yourself, convincing yourself that you're justified, you're right, it's different for you, you're quarreling with God. In Exodus here, God graciously condescends once again as they need water, and in this moment he provides water for them. Through Moses striking a rock, water bursting forth to provide for them. And like I said, Exodus 16 is so incredible. I wish we could spend some time there looking at the manna and how it foreshadows Christ, looking at the water here that comes from the rock and how it foreshadows Christ. We don't have time to explore that today. The lesson I want us to focus on today is to see how God exposes again a root of sinfulness in the people and these common sins that they have are the common sins that we have and God speaks to them and so he speaks to us in ways that should change us. In this room, in this era that God has placed us in of world history, in this season of our church life even, there are many of us struggling with these same sinful roots, producing these same sinful actions in our lives. And so we should hear the warning that comes from verse 7 here in chapter 17 when Moses makes clear once again what's really happening in all these sinful expressions that are coming out in the people. Moses called, look at verse 7, Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying. I don't think they were saying this out loud. They're saying this in their heart, by their grumbling, by their bitterness, by their quarreling. Is Yahweh among us or not? They're doubting him. Can we really trust him? Should we really obey him? Are we confident he's going to provide for us? We don't see water. If we don't even see water, how can we trust where he leads us? They're doubting God. Is he among us or is he not? That's the question of their hearts. And that's the same question that's playing out in our hearts with those words or different words every time these sins overflow from us. Every time we become grumbling, complaining, quarrelsome, or bitter, we're doubting and distrusting that our God really is among us, really is with us, really is in control of where we are and what is happening. And it's so easy to get caught up in this. I know. I know. Just over the last several weeks, like, let me just kind of open my heart to, to you. Like I've been really tempted towards some of this same type of sinfulness in my own life. Because to be really honest, I don't like all the areas of the wilderness that God leads me through any more than you like the areas of wilderness God leads you through sometimes. Like these last 10 to 12 months of the wilderness journey for me in this life, they've not been pleasant. I don't, I don't really like a lot of the things that have been happening. There are things we had to experience in the last 10 to 12 months that I didn't ever want to experience. There, there's a lot of places and issues that I've had to spend a lot of time in, massive amounts of my time working on, that I didn't want to spend any time working on. But that was the, the place, the wilderness that God had brought me through. I, I had to do some of this, this, this type of work over the last 10 to 12 months. It's, 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 it's like foundation work, right? Which when you're starting out, it's really exciting, you're seeing it and everything, but as soon as something goes above the foundation, no one looks at the foundation anymore. No one cares what's about the foundation anymore. But if you don't have a good foundation, everything will crumble eventually, right? So the foundation works really, really important, but it's really, really underappreciated. And so I'm spending a lot of time doing this kind of stuff, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't like this, but I know, I know, God, this is part of what you've led me through in this season of the wilderness, this place of the wilderness. But I too don't like it. And I look at other parts, even other parts of the wilderness, and go, see, Lord, I'd, I'd rather be in that part of the wilderness doing that thing over there. 
So I've been feeling these struggles and these disappointments of just you know, sometimes feeling like I just don't have enough time. There's just, I can't do everything I want to do. And I'm very aware of when people let me know I'm not doing the thing they want me to do. And, and maybe even I, I recognize, yes, I, I want to do that thing, but I don't have the time because the wilderness I'm in doesn't allow for that. And the sinful response in me can become these sinful responses that all of us can fall into. We can become grumbling. We can become complaining. We can feel bitter. We can begin to quarrel with God. God, why, why here? Are you sure you didn't mean to lead me over there? Do this other thing. And I have to constantly remind myself and preach to my own heart. God is sovereign. He doesn't make mistakes. He's always good, and he's going to equip and lead me in the places he puts me. So wherever I am in the wilderness, it's folly and sin for me to think I wish I was in a different part of the wilderness, much less to think, Lord, I wish I was just back home. (laughs) That's not this world. That's not this life. I'm a soldier on a mission, so Lord, what's ahead of me? Now give me the strength to go do it. And you have to do the same thing too. You have to hear God speaking to you and pressing on your heart because even as I'm more introspective in my own heart at times, I know that many in this room, you're struggling with the exact same things. The roots of these things are deep and they're present in all of us and they overflow in these responses in all of us when we lose sight of God and we fall into the temptation of questioning whether or not he's really with us in whatever we face. But oh, how the gospel speaks such good news to this situation. The truths that we desperately need to hear. The truth is I have to remind myself over and over again, every day preaching the gospel to myself so I can preach the gospel to others. We are sinful. We are broken. We do struggle. This life is hard. And we are not capable on our own of doing anything that needs to be done. But God himself is so powerful, is so faithful, is so present, is so loving, is ever so kind to his people that we are not alone. The gospel says he loves his people so, so much that he came personally to deliver them. Not just in a great pillar of cloud as he did for for Israel leading them out of Egypt in this season. He comes as God incarnate. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking on flesh to walk in this broken world. To experience the fallenness of sin all around him. And yet for himself to remain sinless. For these things that are in all of us, these same roots of sin that are in all of us, to not be present in him. For him to never have grumbled, never have complained, never have become bitter. He lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could just never live, no matter how many chances we got at it. And he came and he lived perfectly and then he died in our place. And he takes every one of these failures, every one of these sinful expressions that pour out of us so easily. Think about how many times you have sinned in these ways. He takes all of those upon himself at the cross. He dies for them. He suffers the punishment for them so that you and I can be given what he earned, perfection. The gospel says no matter where you are in the wilderness, Jesus has not just been there. He is there with you now. And he won't fail. So turn and trust him. Do not doubt, is Yahweh among us? Jesus is among us. Will never leave us, never forsake us. That's his great promise. His cross tells us his love is so great. His power is so personal. His his presence is with us in every moment. He is with us. And that's what helps us combat these moments. So worship team, if you'd come.
we're going to sing and respond this morning. That he's here, he's with us. And I, and I don't know exactly where you are in the wilderness, personally, what you're facing, which of these roots are kind of exposed at the moment and causing these sinful reactions in you. But God does, and God is here, and God's power is greater than whatever is happening in your life. So let's take a few moments to respond to him and to examine our own hearts. This isn't the time to come in and to think, yeah, you know, so-and-so is really struggling with that. Yeah, so-and-so is really sinful in this way. It's not about anyone else but you in this moment. You and Jesus work on your heart. The altars are open. I'd love to pray with you or for you. But let's respond to the Lord in these moments before we leave this place. Let's believe and act as if it's true that he is here with us. You are the only hope, Lord, for the brokenness that dwells within each one of us, the death that would be produced apart from your grace. Lord, I pray that every heart in this room would do this work, this, this hard work, this uncomfortable work, but this necessary work of examining our lives, of looking for where these roots exist and weeding them out, Lord, putting them to death so that we can come to life, the true life that you have provided for us through the cross. Lord, do not let us be captivated by distractions in this world. Do not let us view wrongly this time that we are in, but Lord, sharpen our focus. Help us understand our mission. Help us view rightly this world, the season that you have put us in. Help us long for home, but live faithfully, intentionally as followers of our great God until we get there. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how your gospel speaks to us in this moment, in this place, in these real lives. May you be with us as we go. May you bless us and pour richly your mercy and love upon us. May you change us to be more and more like you this week as we go forward. In your name and all God's people said, amen. amen.